Coming up this week, the most youthful planets ever seen. They're very young, around two million years, compared to the age of our solar system, which is about four and a half billion years old. And China adds another big water project to its long list. Yes, there's been a long history of, of engineering to control water in China. In fact, some people have referred to it as, as a hydrological civilization. Plus changing taste perception in the brain, and we look back on a hundred years of testing general relativity. This is The Nature Podcast for November the 18th, 2015. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. There's nothing more special than new life coming into the world. And it's particularly impressive when it's whole new planets. This week, a team from the University of Arizona have spotted a clutch of baby planets near the very beginning of their lives. But they're not as cute as you're imagining. They are huge. These giant babies are many times bigger than Jupiter. They're also the first planets ever to be caught in the act of forming. Reporter Lizzie Gibney spoke to Arizona astronomer Steph Salem about the infant planets. She began by asking why astronomers are only now able to pick up the distant pitter-patter of accumulating dust particles. So there are a couple of different reasons why it's hard to catch planets in the act of forming. Uh, One is that the planet formation process is pretty quick compared to the lifetime of the star. So if you just chose a random star to look for forming planets around, you wouldn't be very likely to find a star that was forming planets at that instant. Uh, The other reason is that in order to directly observe planet formation, you need to be able to see planets that are pretty faint, so like a thousand times fainter than their star, and that are also very close to their star. For example, the, the planets that we found are about three times as far from their stars as uh, Jupiter is from our sun, but the star is so far away that they look like they're very close together. So, so it was so tough to, to actually witness these baby planets being born. How did you manage it? We used uh, very large telescopes. So we used the large binocular telescope in Arizona and the Magellan telescope in Chile, equipped with adaptive optics. So basically, the Earth's atmosphere will blur light that's coming from the star that you're looking at. So that's the reason why stars twinkle. Uh, And that also makes your images, even though the stars should look like points because they're so far away, it blurs the images out and sort of widens the star into this bigger shape. Uh, And so in order to get really close to the star, we have to compensate for the blurring effects of the Earth's atmosphere. So that's what adaptive optics does. You have a a mirror that can change its shape very quickly to get rid of most of the blurring that the atmosphere causes. And once you'd accounted for these smudges, um, what exactly did you see? We observed this young star in three different wavelengths. Uh, Two of them are infrared. And in the infrared, we saw three point sources, two to three, about three times the distance of Jupiter from our sun. So a little bit of background about the star that we were looking at. It's a star that still had part of its disk, its protoplanetary disk made of dust and gas, but it has an inner clearing. 
So basically the, the picture is you have a star, and then as you go further from the star, you have not very much dust and gas, and then you hit a thicker outer disk. And so the sources that we saw were in the gap between the star and the outer disk. And I've called them baby planets, but how, how baby are they? What kind of stage of their evolution um, do we know that they're at? So they're, they're very young. The age of the system is around 2 million years compared to the age of our solar system, which is about 4.5 billion years old. So we're catching them very early in their evolution. If this is the first time that we've actually witnessed this process happening, what are all of our theories that we already have about how planets form, how solar systems form, based on? So our understanding of planet formation is pretty much based on comparing our theoretical understanding of it to planetary systems that are already mature. So that started with comparing ideas of planet formation to what our solar system looks like. And now it's sort of broadened to planetary systems around other stars and also images of protoplanetary disks. So we can look at what the disks look like and try to tell whether planet formation could be going on, even though we might not be able to see the young planets. And now that we have seen this process in action, do you think there's a chance that any of those theories about solar system formation might change? I think so. Uh, I think something that's really cool about this system is that now we've identified a place where we can go look uh, to find out details about the planet formation process. So one example is we'd like to know exactly how material accumulates onto young planets. And the exact mechanisms by which that happened can't really be constrained by the data that we have. But now we know where we can go look. And could it help us to understand or to evaluate whether Earth-like planets are particularly common or otherwise? The planets that we're seeing uh, around the calcium-15 are more similar to Jupiter than to terrestrial planets. They're somewhere between half as massive as Jupiter and a few times as massive as Jupiter. Uh, so it gives us a better handle on, on giant planet formation than uh, Earth-like planet formation. That was Steph Salem. Her team's paper, as always, you can get at nature.com forward slash nature. Coming up, meddling with tastes by changing brain activity. And, in the research highlights, a golden retriever called Ringo. But before that, China's plan to reroute billions of cubic metres of water. One substance is inextricably linked with the power of China as a civilization. It's not precious metals. It's not even fossil fuels. It's water. Yes, there's been a long history of, of engineering to control water in China. This is John Barnett, a geographer who has studied China's water resources. In fact, some people have referred to it as, as a hydrological civilization. And mastery of water symbolized the authority to rule and control of the social order. The first dam in China was built in 600 BC and stretched over 100 kilometres. It's still in use today. And then there's the Grand Canal, which runs from Beijing all the way to Hangzhou, south of Shanghai. The word grand could have been invented for this canal. Work began on the Grand Canal over 2,500 years ago, and at its peak it was 2,000 kilometres long. 
it is said uh, that it's the largest and most extensive civil engineering project in the world prior to the Industrial Revolution. Now China has a new water plan. The state wants to provide water to the drier north from the Yangtze River in the south. They've built a sprawling network of reservoirs and canals that stretches over 1,000 kilometres. It takes water from the Yangtze River, which is one of the world's, by volume, the world's third largest river, through to the north of China through two routes which are already operating and one route that is planned. There's an eastern route which is built partly on the Grand Canal that it takes 15 billion cubic metres of water from the Yangtze River up to the provinces of Jiangsu, Anhui, Shandong, Hebei, right up into Tianjin. Let me just stop Barnett here for a moment. 15 billion cubic metres a year. That's more water than the whole of the UK takes from its rivers and lakes in a year. And that's only one bit of it. And there's a middle route which is now being completed and it takes about 10 billion cubic metres a year to the north, largely for urban and industrial uses. And it's intended to supply a third of Beijing's water. To get a, uh, a sufficient um, head of water in the Dunjiangko Reservoir for the middle route, they had to raise the reservoir there by 13 metres, and this led to the displacement of over 300,000 people. Together, these two routes account for 25 billion cubic metres of water a year, approaching what France uses. And, wait for it, there's a third prong planned. The third route is planning to take water from, from in the upper areas of the Yangtze River, up, up uh, in highly elevated areas, through a series of tunnels to the upper reaches of the Yellow River. That's a much more technically challenging project. Technically challenging and, say Barnett and his colleagues, completely unnecessary. They dispute what the Chinese government says about the North being desperately in need of water. In an opinion piece, they urge the Chinese government to shelve the plans. I asked Barnett to explain why. This problem of scarcity in China isn't so much a, a natural scarcity of water, though the area is reasonably dry. It's really a scarcity of management. There's a few reasons for this. One is agricultural uses consume about 80% of the water in North China, and their use is growing very rapidly because as industrialisation in the south causes a displacement of land, for urban and industrial uses and also driving up of land values. Agriculture is increasingly shifting to the north of China. This is unfortunate because all the rain is in the south. That agricultural use is very inefficient. And so water tables are lowering. There's some estimates that show that about half the aquifers in the North China Plain are now below sea level. There's another problem about water pollution. Many of the rivers in North China are highly polluted and so the surface water that is available isn't good for much use certainly not for uh, domestic consumption in Beijing. What do you fear will happen if this project goes ahead as it's planned? The south-north water transfer now means managing water across multiple river basins, across two of the world's biggest rivers, the Yangtze and the Yellow, across two megacities with populations over 20 million people in Shanghai and Beijing, across six provinces and hundreds of millions of water users. And the scope for significant Areas in governance that have massive downstream effects ecologically or socially uh, are very large indeed. Gosh, these are some big numbers. Two of the world's largest rivers, 40 million people living in Beijing and Shanghai combined. I mean, what, what would you propose instead of this project, given, <laughs> given that some water shifting is presumably inevitable in any country that has a, a shortage in some places? Yeah, the, the, there are a number of solutions, and these are, these are well understood. Um, the challenges are institutional, of course. 
because agriculture is so inefficient and consumes 80% of the region's water, that is an, is an important uh, place to start to make sure that North China is more water self-sufficient. Trying to better plan the distribution of agricultural production in China would go some way towards halting the intensification of agricultural production in northern China and certainly that's an important solution. About half of agricultural water in the North China Plain is lost through seepage through irrigation canals uh, or evaporation. And so fairly simple engineering technologies like lining irrigation canals with concrete um, will prevent an awful lot of loss of water. There are really significant problems about water rights and the timing of the availability of water. Farmers don't get supplied water when they need it, they get supplied water when rivers are running high. And so this leads to massive inefficiencies and wasting in rural water use. In cities, much more could be done to harvest rainwater and to recycle wastewater. This is an area where China has made very little progress so far. In fact, one senior figure noted that the South North Water Transfer Project could have been completely avoided if a third of the buildings in Beijing collected rainwater. But I think it's, we're seeing the early stages of, of that kind of more institutional and smaller levels of reform and, and, and feeling their way through that as the Chinese government always does. It's always experimenting and learning. I think that process really needs to accelerate in order to solve North China's water problem. That was John Barnett at the University of Melbourne. His comment piece can be found at nature.com news. Coming up at the end of the show, we celebrate the 100th anniversary of Einstein's general relativity theory and take a look at the lengths scientists have gone to to test it. But first, the research highlights. Here's Corey Locke. Polarised light is all around us, but only a few animal species, such as crustaceans, are able to see it. Researchers wanted to find out, what do animals use this vision for? They studied mantis shrimps in the lab and found that the bodies of these animals reflect a distinctive pattern of polarization that is visible only to other shrimps. When presented with different burrows, mantis shrimps avoided those that were lit with polarized light. This could mean that the animals use these light signals to see which burrows are already occupied, to avoid run-ins with potential rivals. You can find the research in the journal Current Biology. More than a decade ago, Brazilian researchers bred a golden retriever to have the genetic mutation that causes a devastating muscle disease called Duchenne muscular dystrophy. But the dog, named Ringo, never developed the symptoms of the disease. To find out why, researchers studied Ringo's genome and found a separate mutation in a different gene. This second mutation increases the production of a protein involved in muscle development. This change somehow compensated for the muscle problems caused by the Duchenne mutation. The study is published in the journal Cell. Before we take a look at general relativity, this next interview has been tickling our collective taste buds. The tasteful Ewan Calloway has more. I have a confession to make, Nature Podcast listeners. I love gummy candy, especially those sweet and sour gummies. In fact, my mouth is watering just thinking about the taste of them, which is kind of strange if you think about it. How is it that this mix of sugars, gelatin, and who knows what other chemicals provides me with so much joy when it hits my tongue? To find out, I called neuroscientist Charles Zucker at Columbia University in New York. He's got a paper in this week's Nature on how the brain handles taste. The journey begins, of course, in our mouths. So there are five basic taste qualities, sweet, sour, bitter, salty, and umami. 
Umami is the taste that we associate with protein-rich foods. And it means yummy, delicious in Japanese. Chemicals in gummy, like sugars and sour acids, activate taste receptors within cells on my tongue. They send this information to a brain area called the taste cortex. In our taste cortex, we have specific fields of neurons which are dedicated to sense and to represent the taste of sweet, bitter, salty, and so forth. The taste cortex transmits information about taste to other parts of the brain that control behaviors, squinting your nose if something is sour, for example. Taste is thought to be innate and hardwired, predetermined. You are meant to like sweet and you're meant to dislike bitter and you have no choice. Of course, that is not the full picture. Second only to my love of gummy is my love of coffee, a taste that's really bitter. Humans seem to be unique in their ability to override these innate taste preferences. Leaving coffee aside, though, Zucker and his colleagues wanted to understand this innate sense of taste, from detection to perception, and they did this by tricking mice. They focused on sweet and bitter tastes. The two predictions were that if we could go into your brain, and this was done in mice, so it's the brain of a mouse, and we could selectively silence, let's say, the sweet cortical field in the mouse's brain, we should be able to give this mouse all the sweet you want in the tongue. And even though the tongue might be detecting and recognizing that sweet, this animal will not sense it. And conversely, we figure, we should be able to go into the brain of this mouse, directly, for example, activate the cortical field that represents the sense of bitter, and this animal will sense bitter, even though we're giving it absolutely nothing but water on the tongue. The researchers activated different taste centers in the brain using light, a technique called optogenetics. In essence, a set of light-activated switches that can be introduced into neurons, and then one can use laser light to turn on and off these switches, and in the process, activating the corresponding neurons. By activating specific parts of the brain, researchers were able to make the mouse perceive tastes that weren't there. So if we activate, for example, the cortical field representing bitter taste, the animal begins, of course, immediately squinting, gaping, and gagging. They didn't just make mice taste non-existent bitter things. They could modify their perception in response to real tastes, too. That was a very cute experiment. That's what we call the Mary Poppins experiment. You remember Mary Poppins said a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. So we reasoned it should be possible to give an animal an orally applied bitter chemical that should trigger normally very strong aversive responses. And at the same time, use direct activation of the brain center representing sweet. And in fact, this animal will think that what is actually sampling, tasting, is something nicely sweet. And we performed this experiment, and we could demonstrate that we can beautifully override what otherwise could be an innately unpleasant, aversive quality. This work is not just about confusing mice. It says something important about perception. Even without a stimulus like sugar, 
the brain can still perceive sweetness and make an animal act accordingly. In essence, these experiments show that by manipulating the brain centers representing, in this example, bitter and sweet, it is possible to directly control an animal's internal representation, its sensory perception, and behavioral actions. Parents around the world may rejoice at the idea that they could make their kids' broccoli taste more like gummy, but Zucker, although hopeful, doesn't think we are quite there yet. These are experiments done in mice, which are very invasive. But they teach us something about the magic of the brain. And that's the fact that we can directly manipulate, control, modulate brain centers and change both our sensory experiences and our motivation to go and eat or not eat a certain food. So in terms of lessons, I think it does provide an interesting path forward where perhaps non-invasively eventually we can have access to these cortical fields and be able to make a meaningful difference in both nutritional and eating disorders. The big news this week is that general relativity is 100 years old. Now, using clips from our archive, we celebrate its centenary and find out just how difficult it's been to test. In November 1915, Albert Einstein presented his theory of general relativity. So, in brief, Einstein's work on general relativity was predicated on the notion that there's no force of gravity. This is historian of science David Kaiser at MIT. And that what appears as the phenomenon of gravity, uh, an apple falling on uh, Newton's head and near his orchard, or the moon falling in its orbit around the Earth, or all these gravitational effects that have been so well studied. What if they arose because space and time are as wobbly as a trampoline? That space-time can be warped or distended, uh, and then everything else has to move as straight as it can on a, on a warped surface. It was a big idea. Space and time were now more fluid, billowing concepts. It was pretty confusing. But the maths, the maths was perfect, says physicist Pedro Ferreira. It, it's perfect for a number of reasons. One is, if you know a little bit of maths and you look at the way that it's written down, it's this incredibly succinct set of equations that describe what gravity is in terms of space-time. And it, it's, just, it's just this beautiful set of equations, very simple, that um, explain everything. It just doesn't seem to go wrong. We've had it for 100 years, and it's, it has this tremendous resilience. So it's, it's a bit like a work of art, one of these glorious works of art that we've had for, for, for centuries. Uh, Einstein's theory is a bit like that. Over its lifetime, the theory has been tested and retested. And Ferreira is right. It's amazingly robust. But when Einstein first published his equations, it was really tricky to test them. In 1915, the First World War was ravaging Europe. Einstein and others had ideas about how to test the theory, but nobody could manage it, because it relied on travelling to view a solar eclipse. The idea was this. Einstein's theory predicted that light should be curved by the sun's gravity on its way to Earth. So by waiting for a solar eclipse, and then using the darkness to look at the light that comes from distant stars, you could tell if the sun's gravity was bending the starlight. Here's Matthew Stanley, who's at New York University. So Einstein was trapped 
in Germany and couldn't conduct any of these experiments himself. There was one German astronomer named uh, Erwin Freundlich who did try to observe this in August 1914, but had the misfortune of trying to observe an eclipse that was in Russian territory just as World War I broke out. So he and his colleagues were actually arrested as enemy aliens, and his equipment uh, was impounded and took some years for him to get home. So by the end of World War I, Einstein's theory had sat for some years without any kind of clear empirical evidence one way or the other. In its early days then, the theory languished, exciting but untestable. And then, right after the war ended, the astronomer Arthur Eddington carried out a famous test of Einstein's theory. He planned two expeditions to witness a solar eclipse in the Southern Hemisphere, from Brazil and from a Portuguese colony off the coast of Africa. The problem was, well, there were a lot of problems. The path of the eclipse was across the southern half of the planet, not very convenient for European astronomers. So Eddington went to the observing location off the coast of West Africa. One of the things he discovered after he managed to get there uh, was that the island had terrible weather. So the odds of them getting a good observation were very low. So uh, once they got there, they had to not only find a place where they could set up out of the rain, uh, but it was very near the edge of the forest. So one of the problems they had was that monkeys living in the forest kept coming down and sabotaging their equipment structures. In Brazil, there were two telescopes at work. One of them, the so-called astrographic, was the primary and more sophisticated telescope. But its mirror deformed slightly underneath the heat of the sun and distorted the results. Despite these mishaps, Eddington's mission was considered a resounding success. And even though the numbers looked a bit fudged, historians pretty much agree that he didn't cook his books. His observations seemed to nail it. And then gradually, physics moved away from general relativity towards trendy quantum physics. General relativity was gone from the limelight for a while, but not forgotten. In the 1950s and 60s, physicists started to plan an ambitious new test. Where Eddington's attempts had been delayed by a few years, the new plan took four decades to develop. Finally, in 2004, NASA launched a spacecraft called Gravity Probe B, carrying gyroscopes to measure the dragging of spacetime around Earth. What it found when the mission concluded in 2011 was in agreement with Einstein's predictions. Enough testing already, I hear you cry. But there's plenty more to find out, says Ferreira. Over time, I've come to realise that we're living in this glorious age of, of general relativity. It's, it's almost as if, even though this theory has been around for a hundred of years, there's so much to be discovered, from directly imaging black holes to seeing gravity waves to understanding the expansion of the universe to understanding quantum gravity. And so much needs to be explained and discovered a new generation of tests are set to add details to the theory's predictions and test that it holds up at the very extremes. Between them, they have all the hallmarks of the older tests. Like Gravity Probe B, they take a really long time, and some of them were subject to some last-minute mistakes and corrections, just like Arthur Eddington's. So to conclude with a look to the future and tell me about these experiments, I have Lizzie Gibney. Hello, Kerry. Now, first of all, are these we should say, are both space-based experiments. Tell us first about the Galileo satellites. 
the Galileo satellites are an ESA system, which um, are supposed to be a bit like GPS, like a European version of the global positioning system that, that the US has. And last year, there was an unfortunate event when the launch of two of these satellites went a little bit wrong. The orbit that they were put into, rather than being a nice, even circular orbit, was quite a wide ellipse. So at the time, that made them completely useless for this GPS system. And now there's this, uh, what I think is a lovely idea, very kind of opportunistic. They've realised that what they can do is use the satellites to actually test general relativity. On board these satellites, you have pretty precise atomic clocks. And one of the things that relativity tells us is that when you are closer to a heavier object, time actually slows down. So the fact that the satellites are twice a day going up and down by about eight and a half thousand kilometers. That actually means that we can see the ticking, compare the ticking of that clock when it's in a lower position versus a higher position. And is data coming back from these things yet? As you say, they were launched kind of incorrectly and people have only just, I suppose, decided to use them for this new function. Exactly. So it was just last week that ESA announced that this is what they plan to do now. And we expect results when, given that time might slow down in the interim or have I misunderstood? Um, well, yeah, in fact, time will be slowed down for us compared to these satellites. Um, we expect the results in about a year. Now, another prediction, aside from the clocks um, that Einstein's theory makes and that we haven't really been able to test brilliantly yet, uh, are these things called gravitational waves. Can you just explain what these are? So gravitational waves, when we have the, say, collision of two enormous objects in the universe, like galaxies, they actually create gravitational waves, which are kind of ripples in space-time, but we've not yet actually been able to pick them up directly. So we have a few, we have a couple of experiments on Earth, um, and the idea of this experiment would be to do something similar, but in space. Nice. This is, and the acronym for this is LISA. So what's what's LISA going to be doing? Well, the eventual LISA mission um, is going to be something which just sounds so wonderfully ambitious. It's, it's a constellation of three different spacecraft, uh, which will be set about five million kilometres from each other in space. And inside them, there will be tiny little test masses, which will be in free fall, and there'll be lasers bouncing between them. And um, the idea is that they should all be falling in perfect free fall unless a gravitational wave comes along, in which case we would see that by ever so tiny changes in the frequency of this light bouncing between them. And that we'll be able to use those waves to study these massive objects, these colliding galaxies, supermassive black holes that actually produce the gravitational waves. Um, now that's that's the vision for the future. And what is happening is uh, a kind of an experiment which will test whether that is even possible. So we're going to have two test masses which are just about 38 centimetres apart. Um, but the idea is we'll have cracked all the really difficult bits if we can get this to work. What do you think Einstein would have made of all of these I think he'd probably like the fact that they are being tested. I mean, there's one thing that we still don't know is that we can't reconcile our theories of gravity with quantum mechanics. So, you know, people at some level think we haven't got the full picture. Maybe general relativity, once we push it to the extremes, will be wrong, but maybe it won't. Thank you to Lizzie Gibney, whose stories on the LISA Pathfinder mission and the repurposed Galileo satellites are at nature.com slash news. Earlier on, you heard from physicist Pedro Ferreira, author of a book about general relativity called The Perfect Theory, and historians David Kaiser and Matthew Stanley. 
If you want to hear the full story of Arthur Eddington's mission to test Einstein, check out the Pastcast archive page at nature.com slash pastcast. This month is also the one-year anniversary of the Rosetta mission reaching Comet 67P. Over on our YouTube channel, you can find out what we've learnt so far about this friendly little duck-shaped ice heap and what's left to discover. Head over to youtube.com forward slash nature video channel for that. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. <laughs> <laughs>